0: The title of my message this morning is, In Christ Alone. I've said it multiple times. That's what I want you to see this morning. I want you to see that your relationship with God is in Christ, in Christ alone. Not on our works, not on our rituals. As, the, as we can see, the Jews, you know, they, 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 there was some, these people, the Judaizers, they clinged to their circumcision. And Paul's going to correct that this morning. He's going to be like, no, guys. It's in Christ and Christ alone. As I was preparing my message this week, looking at um, Philippians chapter three, the thing, as I was studying it and I came up with this title, "In Christ Alone." It brought me back. It took my mind back to 1993. How many of you guys? Uh, any Colts fans in here, by chance? Okay, we got we got a couple. We got one Colts. Fan. Oh, we got two Colts fans. Well, as I was studying my message this this week, it brought my mind back to a gentleman by the name of Frank Reich. Anybody ever heard of Frank Reich? That name, is that picture? Anybody? That, this is Frank Reich on the left. That's Frank Reich on the right. That's Frank Reich on the bottom. But anyway, Frank Reich is now the head coach of the of the Indianapolis Colts. Great coach, great guy. On January 3rd, 1993, he was the quarterback of the Buffalo Bills. He got up on that Sunday morning and he prayed. He, he read the... Um, he was in prayer and doing his devotion, and he read the lyrics to the song by Michael English called "In Christ Alone," and it so touched his heart. He stuck it in his—he he stuck the lyrics in his back pocket. Went to the AFC Championship game. He was—they were playing the, um, the Houston Oilers—and he prayed that morning. He's like, "Lord, give me an opportunity to share this with someone." So he went to the stadium that day. He says, "I, I watched his interview. He put it in his locker, and they went out to play the." Uh, The Houston Oilers, at halftime, they were down 35 to 3. The Houston Oilers were laying the wood. They were taking them behind the woodshed, and they they were having their way with the Buffalo Bills. Well, in the third quarter, Frank Reich came in. He was actually in the first half also. He wasn't doing very well. But in the third quarter, Frank Reich engineered the greatest comeback in NFL history ever. They came, but they were down 35 to three. Frank Reich came back and led the Buffalo Bills to the greatest comeback. And then after the game, you know, they have the press conferences where the players get up there. You got ESPN, NFL Network, CBS, and uh, he he went up to get before the press conference and he whipped out his, his his notes from his devotion. And you can go Google this greatest comeback in NFL history or um, Frank Reich great comeback, and you can listen to his interview. With ESPN and the national media all before him, he read the lyrics to the song in Christ alone, and this is what it says. He read this. You know, they're they're waiting to hear. Um, well, what did you do when, you know, how did you get those guys open? What what changed in the in the third quarter that caused the comeback? But Frank Reich says these words. He says, "In Christ alone will I glory, for only by His grace I am redeemed." Only his tender mercy could reach beyond my weakness to my need. Now I seek no greater honor than just to know him more and to count my things but losses to the glory of the Lord. In Christ alone, Frank, Frank Reich says, in Christ alone I place my trust and find my glory in the power of the cross. In every victory, let it be said of me, my source of strength, my source of hope is Christ alone. Frank Reich, he understood um, what it meant to be in Christ, in Christ alone. Uh, 1995, this is how Pastor David got hooked on the Carolina Panthers. I got out of the Navy in 95, and I, I read a news article that says uh, Frank Reich to be the starting quarterback of the Carolina Panthers. And I remembered back to the, his story of in Christ alone, and I was hooked ever since <laughs> watching Frank Reich. Then he went on to go to uh, the Reformed Theological Seminary in Charlotte, went on to be a pastor for 10 or 15 years, for for a long time, and then they called him back, and now he's a head coach of the uh, Indianapolis Colts. How cool is that? Isn't that cool? That is cool. But that's my message this morning. My message is in Christ alone. So if you would, turn in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3, we're going to look at the first... uh, The first 14 14 verses, Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 through 14. Let's pray. Father God in heaven, thank you for your word. Thank you for um, what we're going to see in it this morning. Lord, let the, the words of scripture come off the pages of our Bibles and come into our hearts, Lord. Let us hide your word in our hearts, Lord, that you will build us and keep us. In a right relationship with you, serving you, trusting you, having faith in you. In Jesus' name I pray, Father. Amen. Amen. All right, let's take a look at it, guys. Philippians chapter 3, verse 1. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same thing again is no trouble to me. It is a safeguard for you. I like how Paul opens up Philippians chapter 3, finally. And the reason why I like the way he opens it up is that a lot of times Preachers will say, finally. And then you think the sermon is coming to an end. But Paul goes on for two more chapters. So that gives me encouragement when I get a little long-winded. I can say, finally, that I can keep going a little bit longer. But he says, finally, my brother, rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in your relationship with Christ. You've got reason to rejoice and be glad. Because you are in a right relationship with the creator of the universe. Praise the Lord. He says rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord. And I'm going to say rejoice in the Lord. And not only rejoice in the Lord, but rejoice in Christ alone. That's the theme of the book of Philippians. Paul uses the phrase joy or rejoice 16 times. But Pastor David, I've got no reason to rejoice this morning. What's there to rejoice for? Let me give you just a couple. One, you're forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. They're not held against you. That that alone is amazing. That everything I've ever done, every sin I've ever committed is under the blood of Calvary. Praise the Lord. How about this one? You have a new life. David Ford passed away in 1992. The old man passed away. And the new man came to life all because of Christ and Christ alone. How amazing is that? We have eternity in heaven. We have eternity in heaven. That's another reason to rejoice because we're in Christ. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And I love this one. The fourth reason to rejoice this morning is our life, your life, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, is in the palm of his hands. You're under his his protection. You're under his care. He holds you. He sustains you. He carries you. Why? Because you're in Christ, in Christ alone. Look at verse 2. He says, beware the dog. He's going to give a warning now. This is a warning to what um, can encroach in our relationship with Christ that can can run it amok. Verse 2, he says, beware of the dogs, beware of the evildoers, beware of the false circumcision. Some of your translations say the mutilators of the flesh. These are Judaizers. The name Judaizer means to live according to Jewish traditions. And as Paul was going about his missionary journeys in, in Europe, he had these guys called the Judaizers. Paul would go in, establish the church, establish the believers in grace, and then he would go to the next town. Well, he had these Judaizers coming behind him and coming in and saying, Okay, you can believe in Jesus, you can believe in grace, but you also got to be circumcised. You also got to follow Jewish customs. They had a council in Acts chapter 15 where this was firmly established at the Council of Jerusalem and said, No, the Gentiles are being saved by God's grace through faith in Christ. We will not impose on them any rituals. But this group called the Judaizers were wanting to. They were saying, believe in Jesus plus ritual. Believe in Jesus plus tradition. Believe in Jesus plus circumcision. And look what Paul calls them in verse 2. First he calls them dogs. He calls them dogs. Because they were like wild dogs. They followed Paul everywhere he went. And they were nipping on his heels, bringing in this false teaching that, oh, to be saved you got to be believe in Jesus And you got to be circumcised. So he calls them dogs. He calls them evil workers. Because they were bringing contaminated doctrine into the church. They were bringing this this, uh, false doctrine of grace plus works equals salvation. That's why he calls them evil workers. Then he says, uh, in verse 2, he calls them uh, false circumcision. Outright, they were false teachers. Do you see Paul's view of grace? We protect grace. We defend grace. That's why we teach chapter by chapter, verse by verse through the Bible. Because we want to stay faithful to Christ and our relationship with Christ is based on grace. It's not based on your works. It's not based on your offering. It's not based on your baptism. It's not based on your church attendance. It's based on in jesus and in christ alone these guys many people would classify them these, this is what you would call legalism that's what these judaizers were they, they were legalistic legalism is when you add works to salvation when you add ritual when you add tradition or you add circumcision um, to salvation it becomes legalism this next statement i wanted to make it very clear so people know where i stand. And what I believe the Bible teaches So I brought up a slide Just so you can see it clearly as I say it But it's this If someone adds anything To repentance And believing in Christ For salvation That is legalism That is legalism God says I'm not You don't get no glory from this This is all my work This is all what Christ did at Calvary and his resurrection from the dead. And all we do, according to Mark 115, Jesus' own words, is we repent and we believe the gospel. Repentance means it's more than just a change of mind of who Jesus is. But our repentance is, is a turning away from sin, turning away from the old life, and saying, Jesus, I'm trusting in you. That's what repentance and faith is. I'm done with that old life. It doesn't mean perfection. We're gonna see that here in a few verses doesn't mean you're perfect. It doesn't mean you are perfect does not mean you do not blow it from time to time. But in general, you've turned away from the old sinful life. You said, God, I'm sorry. I've broken your law. I've broken your commandments. And I'm turning to Jesus. And it's at th- that point that you are saved. It's not when you're water baptized. It's not when you sign a card. It's not um, when, when you partake of the Lord's Supper. It's repentance and faith in Christ and Christ alone. And a very important point I want to make here is this, to call believers to obedience, listen to me clearly, to call believers to obedience is not legalism. It is not legalism. It is being faithful to Christ and it's being faithful to scripture. We are called to obedience. Jesus said in John chapter 14 verses 15 and 23, he said, if you love me, you will obey me. You will obey me. You know, that's part of our of our faith is saying, Lord Jesus, I love you so much. You're so great. And that old wicked, evil lifestyle that I left is so horrible that I'm trusting in you. And not only am I trusting you and loving you, but I'm obeying you. That's part of our faith. So that, that's, that's where these guys were. And Paul, Paul calls them dogs, evil workers, and false circumcision. That's the biblical response to legalism. Because it contaminates grace. It contaminates the gospel. It's all what God has done for us. That's what separates Christianity from all other religions. Is all other religions is a workspace system where you're working your way up the ladder. Not with Christianity. It's what Christ came down and did for us. That's what makes it glorious good news. It's not not anything on me that I've done. But it's on what Christ did for us at at the cross. Let's look at verse 3. Now, I'm here to proclaim to you, everyone has to partake of a circumcision. Look at verse 3. For we are the true circumcision who worship in the Spirit of God and in the glory of Christ Jesus, and we put no confidence on the flesh. The circumcision that we partake of, that we do, is done by the Holy Spirit. It's done by the Holy Spirit, where the Holy Spirit comes in, he cuts away that old man and gives us this new life in Christ. True circumcision, according to verse 3, is when you're born again. That's true circumcision, is when God gives you a new heart and he removes that old life. And that, just like the flesh was cut away in us today, that old man is cut away and removed. That's biblical true circumcision. And he says there in verse 3, what I, I really like, he says here, um, makes it very clear if there's any doubt. The the very end of verse 3, he says, and puts no confidence in the flesh. We put no confidence in the flesh. We put no confidence in our religious works. We put no uh, confidence in our appearance. Isaiah 64, 6 says, all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. All of our righteous acts are like filthy rags. It's in him and him alone as he gives it to us. We respond in faith, repentance, and love for our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Look at verse 4. Verse 4, he says, uh, Although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh, if anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more. Paul's like, you think you've got something? You think you've undergone some rituals? You think you've followed Judaism? Well, let me rip out my resume and it just drops out. He, he, he's gonna list in verse five, he's gonna list in verse five reasons why, if you could put confidence in the flesh, he would look at it. Verse five. He says, circumcised on the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law a Pharisee, and to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness which is in the law. Paul says he was blameless. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss. For what? For the sake of Christ. What things were of gain for Paul that now are a loss? Go back and look at verse 5. He says, circumcised on the eighth day. And Paul's now saying, you're not getting to heaven by your ritual. Your ritual doesn't mean nothing when it comes to righteousness. He says, of the nation of Israel, not by race. Of the tribe of Benjamin, not by your family. Not by your family can you make it to heaven. A Hebrew of Hebrews, not by tradition or heritage. As to the law of Pharisee. He says, verse 6, as to zeal. This is what separated most Pharisees. This is what separated Pharisees from most Jews. Is the Pharisee? He had a zeal and a passion for the law, for the customs, for the rituals, for, for the Torah, uh, for, for for the Talmud, for all the writings they had. They had a very zeal, they had a zeal and they had a passion. And he says there in verse six, a persecutor of the church. His zeal was so great for Judaism and for the for the Torah and for the law that anything that came against it, he would hate. And what did Paul do? It says, it says in the book of Acts, he went out breathing murderous threats. Murderous threats against the Christians. He wanted to kill them. He wanted to stomp them. He wanted to put them out. It says he gave wholehearted approval at Stephen's stoning. We saw his zeal and his passion even in the Bible of, of Paul before Christ. And now his zeal and his passion is for the gospel. His zeal and his passion for the gospel because he knew that The the theme of my teaching this morning, he knew this theme, which was there's only one foundation, and that's in Christ, in Christ alone. Verse 8, he says, More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish that I may gain Christ. If a Pharisee was reading verse 8, this is the most offensive verse in the New Testament to a Pharisee. This would be the most offensive, vile verse to a Pharisee who was not a Christian if they read verse 8. Look at it. He says, uh, in verse 8, he says, I count all things to be lost. He's talking about the items back up in verse 5. And, th- and then look what he says at the end of it. He says, I count them but rubbish. Rubbish, the Greek word is skivalon. It means horse dung. He considered anything that competed to having faith in Christ for righteousness as horse dung. Does that bother us? Does that bother you? That he would compare those things, those rituals, those traditions? Does that bother you that he would say that? That he would call it rubbish? That he would call it skyballon? Dung? Animal Dung? What's the most important thing in your life? What, what is that thing that you hold near and dear? I'm, hey, guys, I was asking myself these questions this week as I'm praying and I'm preparing my sermon and preparing to teach. I'm like, oh, David, what is it that I hold near and dear to my heart? What is that thing I love to do? Maybe it's a hobby. Maybe it's just something that just really excites me. I had to ask myself, and I asked you this morning, do you consider it rubbish compared to knowing Christ? That's where the Apostle Paul is at. Yes, he had a life. He was a tent maker. He had to take care of himself and live life. But ultimately, his supreme allegiance and his supreme love was in Christ alone. It was in Jesus Christ alone. And anything that competed with that, He was like no this is this is first in my life my relationship with christ verse 9 he says it may be found in him not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law but that which is through faith in christ the righteousness which comes from god on the basis of faith again the theme of the passage here a religious person focuses on themselves a religious person focuses on their accomplishments Focuses on their good works. They have a show me wall. You know, we we man, we like those, don't we? We we like to display everything and all of our accomplishments, and that's how the Pharisees were with their Judaism, but not so with the Christian. The Christian's like, no, don't look at me. Look at Christ. Don't lo- don't look at all my accomplishments, but look at what God has done in me. Look at my Lord and Savior. Look at my great and mighty God, Jesus Christ. In Christ alone. Verse ten, he says. And that I may know him. Oh, this is just sweet. This is just such a sweet, intimate verse that if you don't have underlined, you ought to underline it because it's, it's a beautiful prayer in your devotional time. Verse 10, he says, Paul says, That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death. This was Paul's supreme desire. He says, I want to know him. Not in historical facts, but he, he says, I want to know him intimately. Gnosko, I want experiential knowledge of my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. An intimate love for him. That's what Paul is saying here. And he says, I want to know, I want to know his resurrection. I want to know his resurrection. That resurrection power, that, I love the song that we opened up with. His resurrection power working in us. That's what Paul is saying he wants to know that resurrection power that brings new life. It it brings the ability to overcome. It gives us the ability to say no to sin and to live a life that's wholly devoted to Christ. That's what Paul wants to know. He wants to know that awesome, magnificent, glorious power, not in and of himself, but of the Holy Spirit working in him. He's like, Lord, here I am. I'm open do your, let your work, let your power flow through me, is what he's saying. And this look at the second part, very important, equally important. He says, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. And then he says, in the fellowship of his suffering. In the fellowship of his suffering, Jesus suffered greatly. The disciples suffered greatly. Why? Because they stood for righteousness. They stood for truth. And one of, my, one of my sayings, one of my things that, that resonates in my heart is, is standing for truth is more important than life itself. Standing for truth is more important than life itself. As we set the example for others and for our children, we need to make a stand for truth. Even in the, even in the case of when difficult times may come, when trials may come, Jesus says this in John 15, 20. Jesus said, if they persecuted me, they will persecute you. That was Jesus. Here's what Peter said. Peter said, Do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. That's first Peter four twelve. Paul says in Second Timothy three twelve, indeed all who desire to live a godly live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. You know, a little heat is good for your faith. A little heat is good for your faith because it, it fortifies you. When, when you feel the pressure of the world to compromise, and as the old ball coach said, dig down deep and stand for the truth in the face of adversity. It, what, is it, what it does, I believe, is, is when you get in those situations, it causes your roots to go deeper. It, it's, it's a moment of growth, and it's a beautiful moment of growth to, to experience some suffering to experience some difficulty for standing for Jesus Christ in all biblical truth. Very, very important. Negative things happen to us when we stand for truth. But here's the promise of the trial. Here's the promise of the trial. Here's the promise of the suffering. That if you go through that heated moment where you stand for truth and it costs you, it costs you a job, it costs you a relationship, it costs you a family member, it costs you. Remember this, in the middle of that trial or that difficult time for standing for Christ, remember this, it brings intimacy with God. Christ is there by your side and he's upholding you and he's saying, hey, I am with you because you're standing for me. You're standing for truth. What a beautiful Magnificent promise You know they crucified our savior They, they nailed him to a cross You know the the, uh, the Persians Created the art of crucifixion In the third century By the first century the Romans had perfected it And it was meant to inflict Suffering We know all the disciples We know all, all the disciples but one uh, Died a martyr's death because they stood for truth. What happened to John the Baptist? He's like, Yo, Herod, you can't be, you can't be uh, committing adultery. You can't, you can't be committing adultery. What happened to Herod? Lost his head. It's, it's, it's in those moments that I, I believe that we grow, that we grow in our relationship with Him. Let's continue. Verse eleven. He says, uh, in order that I may attain." To the resurrection from the dead. This is why I love the Bible. This is why I love the Bible. It answers our deepest questions. And the question here is, what happens on the other side? Is there life after death? And the, que- and the answer to that question is, yes. Yes, life doesn't end at death. There is an eternal destination for each and every soul. And he says, in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the The Bible teaches there's going to be two resurrections. There's the resurrection of the righteous. There's the resurrection of the unjust. There's the future rapture that's coming, where where Christ is going to transform our, our bodies and give us glorified bodies, and we're going to go with him to be with him in heaven, and we will stand before the Bema seat. But then at the end of the millennial reign, you can read about it in Revelation, there's the thing called the great white throne of judgment. If you wake up on the other side and you're standing before this big great white throne, you didn't do something right. You didn't do something right. Because that is the judgment where all of sinful humanity that have rejected Jesus Christ will stand before him in judgment before they're cast into the lake of fire. You know, there's times in my life where I got radically saved in 1992. And prior to that, It was a very ungodly life. And and, and in my Christian life, I think back to some of the situations where I came came close to death. And it scares me sometimes. Because I was like, that night that we were going down that road and I lost control and we almost went in that ditch. If I would have passed away, I wouldn't be going to heaven. I wouldn't be going to heaven. And... A little, it doesn't scare me, but it but it humbles me, and it makes me say, "Thank you, Lord, for preserving my life. Thank you, Lord, for not letting me not 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 letting me lose my life in my ignorance, but bringing me to a place of salvation in 1992, where I know you as my Lord and Savior. We want to be a part of the. You want to be a part of the resurrection that happens at the rapture. Put your trust in Christ. Repent of your sins. Put your trust in Jesus Christ. Base your relationship on Christ and Christ alone. And you are locked caught and ready to rock. Amen? Amen. Amen. Verse 12. I love verse 12. I love verse 12. Some people will say uh, there's some churches that teach sinless perfection. That you gotta be perfect. And if you commit one sin, it's over. You're not, you're lost. But look at what he says in verse 12. This is coming out, remember now, this is coming. First off, this is God's holy inspired word, but it's also coming from the Apostle Paul. Look at verse 12. He says, Not that I have already obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. He says, verse 12, it starts off with not, and then he says, Already obtained it or have already become perfect. My friend, you have not arrived. You have not arrived. I have not arrived. We can't say, ah, I've arrived, all is well, everything's set. No, we haven't arrived. The Bible teaches that we're on a journey. We're on a journey and we're moving towards Christ. You know, your salvation is secure in Christ and you're moving forward and you're living for him. But look at what he says. Or have become perfect. You're not perfect and neither am I. Christians sin. Okay? Let me say that. Christians sin, and Christians blow it along the way. And God has a remedy for that. It's called grace. It's called grace. Even as a believer, even, even as a Christian, there are times where I've said things I shouldn't have said. Or I've done things I shouldn't have done that were a sin against God. I didn't lose my salvation. The Holy Spirit brought conviction. I brought it to his throne of grace. But don't let no one tell you just because... You fall into a sin that you've lost your salvation. One of the signs that you are saved is that when you do fall, you'll come back to the throne of grace and you'll repent and you'll get it right. Though though many fall to my left and many fall to my right, I will stand up and I will live for Christ and I will shake the dust off and I will keep on going. You're not perfect. I'm not perfect. Christians aren't perfect. I like that bumper sticker. Have you all seen it? Christians aren't perfect. Just forgiven. Yeah, that's what we are. We're not in this, we haven't arrived and we're not in this sinless, perfected state. This body is not glorified. I'm still in the flesh. And until that day, I'm not perfect and I'm trusting in his grace. Leaving the old life behind and moving forward in Christ. Where are we at? Verse 13. We got verses 13 and 14. He says, uh, Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead. Verse 14, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. In verse 13 here, he says uh, two things. He says here, forgetting what lies behind. That's part of our Christian growth. It's to forget what, And leave behind the sins of the past. The mistakes of the past. You've blown it. you've You've committed some heinous sin. Bring it to his throne of grace. Repent. And then leave it behind. And let it go. If God says you're forgiven, who are you to hold it over yourself? Or who are we to hold it over someone else? If they've repented and they put their trust in Christ. The Bible says in Romans 8.1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus who walk according to the Spirit and not after the flesh. And he says here, we reach forward. We reach forward as Christians. What does that mean? We focus on the future. We focus on what God has in store for us in the future. You know, we, we let go of those things on the past, and we focus on what's going to happen in the future. We, we focus on ministering in the body of Christ. We focus on evangelism. We focus on building other people. And let me tell you something, man. Ministry's hard. <laughs> ministry's tough. But I find no greater joy. I find no greater joy. Sometimes I feel like I've just been shellacked. I've just, I've just taken a beating. And then somebody will come along and say, man, that message you gave last Sunday or that phone call or that email, the, the, um, that thing that you did to reach out to someone, it it, it, it worked. You know, it, you help someone just by getting those words back of encouragement. You know what it makes me say? It was all worth it. It was all worth it. So I'm looking forward to the future of what God will do in my life, what God will do in this church. Amen? And then he closes here in verse 14. This is what I call the goal, the objective, and the mission. He says in verse 14, he says, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Paul sees himself as a runner running the race. And he says, I I press. In other words, it's it's not always going to be easy, but I'm pressing forward in my walk with Christ Not to obtain salvation, because you already have that, but pressing forward in what God wants to do in your life. Amen? Amen. I want to close with this thought. Um, This comes from John Tillotson. He's the Archbishop of, uh, of Canterbury. Many people put no focus on their relationship with Christ. Matter of fact, most people, I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not talking about in the church per se, but I'm just talking about in the world. If you, if you look across the spectrum of all people living, people put very little, some people put no interest in the things of faith and in the things of Jesus Christ. This is what John Tillotson says. It's a very foolish way to live. John Tillotson says, he who provides for this life, but takes no care for eternity, is wise for a moment, but a fool forever. You know, the brevity of life is is something that's very real. You know, every single day, 60 60 plus thousand people step from time into eternity. And as Christians, as you leave here today, as I, I hope I've deposited into your hearts this morning, is you can face your eternity. You can face your life. You can face everything there is that's going to come at you in Christ, in Christ alone. Amen? Amen, let's pray. Father God in heaven, thank you for your word. Lord, this is hard sometimes in our minds and our hearts to understand that that we, we look to our Good works, we look to our maybe our baptism or the Lord's Supper, but Father, help us to push all those things away, and help us to trust in You, in You alone, Lord Jesus, for our righteousness, for our salvation. Help us to know that You are the conquering King, and You are, are the are the one that we we live for, we trust in. Let us leave this place with the great hymnals and the great Christian songs and the testimony of Scripture. In you, in you alone, Christ Jesus, will I place my trust. In Jesus' name we pray, Father.